Dear Father, we are thankful for our nation. We are thankful that you have established its borders and raised up its leaders and brought other leaders down. We thank you that this nation has withstood almost 250 years. We pray that uh, we have many years ahead. We pray for a restoration to righteousness in our culture, that we would be biblically minded as we exercise our right to vote. We exercise our voices in this nation. We thank you so much that we have a voice. We pray that it reflect you and speak your words. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. Despite the fact that this is a topical sermon, we're still kind of in Genesis. The idea is to bring us from Noah to Babel and explain what happened there and explain how that applies to us. So this will be the last sermon in our series five in Genesis, answering the question, has God forgotten us? And the idea here is, no, absolutely not. We are right in the middle of his plan from eternity to eternity. And we will see how he has plotted out the whole thing so that our civilization falls smack dab in the middle of his plan. And he has a purpose for us. So we are going to look at two different things, the divine institutions. We have seen four of them already. I promised you five. I'm going to tip my cards here a little bit and say, I believe there are seven, but we'll get to those eventually. I'm giving you the fifth that I promised, and that will be the divine institution of the nation state. Then we're going to take a step back and look at his eternal plan in the terms of the doctrine of civilizations, which I will explain to you once we get there. Then we will apply it to ourselves here in the dispensation of grace, specifically in our nation, the United States. I believe everyone sitting in this room is probably an American, and uh, we have a specific responsibility for God in our nation. And so we want to understand that and exercise that responsibility. So I will start with my main point here. God has put absolute social structures into the very fabric of human existence. And he's done this for the purpose of preservation. He has a plan and he has not forgotten us. He has put us here for such a time as this. So we start with our divine institutions and we are going to look at our fifth, but let's start with our first. This was responsible labor. God put Adam and Eve in the garden and gave them responsibilities. Sadly, they failed to keep these responsibilities, and we see this reflected in the words of their son, who ultimately says to the Lord, he is not responsible even for his own brother's safety. He took his life, but he was not responsible to keep his brother's life. So he says to the Lord, where is, or the Lord says to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? This was the ultimate deterioration of this institute of responsible labor. There was also the divine institution of marriage. This is a social structure that is not created by human volition, but by God's determination. He has created us for this purpose. He has designed this into our very being, and this serves his purposes. And once again, that was deteriorated in the civilization from Adam to Noah. Genesis 6, 1 through 2 says, Now it came about when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they choose. We spent two weeks on this, and we determined that the sons of God were angels. Man had corrupted himself by blending with angelic beings. The divine institution of family was also deteriorated. We see two strands of families coming out of Adam and Eve, we see Cain's strand and we see Seth's strand. One does follow a biblical principle of family and the other does not. Cain's family 
went out from the presence of the Lord, never a good idea. And they settled in the land of Nod, which was the land of wandering, east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch, and he built a city. And he called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. And we all remember Lamech, who took two wives, had four children at least, and his daughter was probably the first to interbreed with angels. But then we look here at Adam's line through Seth. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And he created them male and female. He blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam lived 130 years, he became a father of a son, not in God's likeness, in his own likeness, in his own fallen state. Now, his son and those who come from his son will still have the image of God in them, as we see in Genesis 9. That's the reason murder is wrong, because it destroys the image of God. It is an attack on the very image bearer of God. But here we see that corruption has reduplicated in Adam's son. Family is a very important institution in the social fabric of the world. God has created families so that parents can train their children up in the way they should go. That what God has told them they should be diligent and careful to pass down to the next generation. We see this principle in Deuteronomy 6.4. Remember, this is the same generation who received the book of Genesis to learn from. And so Moses commands them, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. This was their condition for enjoyment of the promised land. As long as they continue to pass on this knowledge of God to the next generation, they would continue to be in covenant obedience and they would continue to enjoy the land which God had brought them into. Our fourth divine institution, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, was the divine institution of government. Now this came in after the first civilization from Adam to Noah after God had destroyed the earth and recreated it through the flood. And this came in as an additional provision to bar the consequences of sin from taking over the whole world once again. And this institution was given to Noah in the command to take a life for a life. Whomever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Protection of life was the very foundation of government. This was the very purpose for which God gave governments authority. They had the ultimate authority to take a life, and they had the prerogative to take a guilty life for taking an innocent life. This was not an option given to them. This was a command given to them. And a nation rises and falls partly on its willingness to keep this command. The first government that we see rising after this, however, is a global government. It is a global government under a man named Nimrod says Cush became the father of Nimrod. Now Cush was the son of Ham. We remember Ham from last week. Cush became the father of Nimrod and or he became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said like Nimrod, 
a mighty hunter before the Lord. And he began his king, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, but Babel was not the only kingdom he ruled over. Also, Erech, which is, uh, we better know as Uruk, or Akkad, which is the ancient culture of Akkadia, and Kalna, and all these were in the land of Shinar. He was amassing a global government, and it was, or its capital was Babylon, Babel. This becomes the perennial enemy to God's holy city, Jerusalem, and it is not destroyed until the end of this civilization. This becomes the primary antithesis to God's people from Noah all the way through the tribulation period at the end of this civilization. And the problem at Babel becomes apparent. In Genesis 11, 5 through 7, we see how God takes care of this problem nation that is taking power over the whole earth and corrupting the whole earth, just as we saw before the flood. It says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They all have the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they propose to do will be impossible for them. This was a problem. This was a problem because as soon as they turned their backs on God, which they already had done, the entire population of the earth would once again fall into sin and come under judgment. God had to protect the earth from judgment so that he could bring about his purposes through Israel and through the church before the time of the end came. So he needs to forestall this judgment, and he does so by creating the nation state. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. God separated people. He divided them into groups that could not communicate with one another. He divided them into groups that could not share the essential foundation of language so that they would be driven away from one another into their own cultures to develop and hopefully develop in the memory of the God who separated them. Many of them did not, though some for a time seemed to have remembered God. If you've ever read Don Carson's book, Eternity in Their Hearts, you see that there are still glimpses of that memory from Babel in the nations around the world, even if they have not been reached by the gospel. They still remember the Noahic Bible, that which was known before the, the dispersion at Babel. And so this is the foundation of the divine institute or institution of the nation state. Nations would be divided so that God could deal with each nation on an individual basis. So that God did not have to judge the whole world, but he could judge a nation. And so one nation might fall, but the rest stand. He is going to preserve one particular nation, the nation of Israel. We'll see his purpose with Israel come a couple of weeks. But this was very important to Paul as well. As he is going out now into the world outside of Israel, that one unique nation, and he is explaining to them that God has a purpose for all of the nations, including you. And he tells them in his sermon on Mars Hill, I believe that's the right one here, the sermon of the unknown God, actually. God made from one man every nation. He's probably speaking of Noah here, not Adam. God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. He has even determined their borders. That they would seek God, and perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. The purpose of the nation is to preserve the word of God. This was specifically the task of Israel. But in keeping the nation separated, the word of God could be preserved 
and the nations, the people in them specifically, could have the opportunity to grope after God rather than being swept away in the corruption of a government. Job 12 also speaks of God creating the nations. It says he makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. He deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people and makes them wander in the pathless waste. Might think of Nebuchadnezzar here. They grope in darkness with no light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Those who turn their backs on God, their nations will not last long. But this brings us to the doctrine of civilizations, because this is something unique in this civilization. And first, we'll have to define this term civilizations because I'm using it in a different way than might be commonly understood. This definition actually comes from a theologian named R.B. Thiem in his paper, The Doctrine of Civilizations, and his definition is this. An advanced state of human society in which high levels of culture, science, industry, and government have been reached. And then he adds to that that biblically, a civilization is a period of history which begins with God's grace, provision, and deliverance of believers in time of disaster and terminates with maximum degeneration of mankind to a point of self-destruction. This is the idea in this civilization, to prolong this self-destruction as long as possible so that God can pull out for himself a people for his name. In the verse that Paul read before the sermon, we see three civilizations mentioned. This is the Greek word cosmos. These cosmos have various different translations, and here in Second Peter it's been translated worlds. The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed. That world is no longer. That civilization is gone. It was flooded with water. It started with two believers, and it ended in destruction, because the entire world had become corrupt before God. But Peter continues, by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Peter is here speaking about the end of the tribulation period. He's not speaking of the end of the millennial kingdom, the eternal state, which comes after was not revealed until John revealed it in Revelation 21. Peter is here still speaking to a people that have not received the revelation of the eternal state. This destruction that he is speaking of is the cleansing of the earth when Jesus Christ returns to rescue his people, Israel, and to establish the next civilization, the millennial kingdom. And so 2 Peter 3.13 tells us, According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, the third civilization. Let's take a quick look at how these civilizations progress from God's instituting them through degeneration. The antediluvian civilization, which is what the first civilization is often called, Anti meaning before and diluvian meaning flood. This is the civilization that existed before the flood. It began with two believers, Adam and Eve. God placed them in a perfect environment of Eden. You see, environment is not the problem of evil. We don't become corrupt because we are put in a corrupt environment. We corrupt our environments. Adam and Eve began with a perfect environment and willingly sinned and corrupted it. 
And so man introduced corruption and death through volitional sin. He chose to disobey God. Man's corruption reduplicates and intensifies. In fact, it intensified very quickly. In one generation, we got to murder, and it only got worse from there. And so it got to the point where man threatened his own existence through angelic interbreeding. Humanity itself was at a point where it perhaps would have destroyed itself. God had to step in. God had to intervene because his plan was not yet complete. His plan of salvation, but also his plan of creation. That a man would rule over the earth perfectly on his behalf. That man who would be Jesus Christ. And so God had to judge all things by destroying all corruption. He had to destroy that which had corrupted itself on earth. And so only Noah and his family were preserved. We see that they were preserved in the line of Messiah. Obviously, he was, had remained human. He had not interbreeded nor had any of his ancestors with angels. Not only that, but he was found righteous before the Lord. He was a man of faith. He was regenerated. And so he was preserved in what one might call Operation Lifeboat. God took a family from the old civilization and planted them in a new civilization. Our first civilization, Adam and Eve then, got on the lifeboat. God carried them into the new civilization, the post-Diluvian civilization. And we saw last week something quite heartbreaking, but something we understand better now that we, are, we have the complete canon of Scripture, that when Noah got off the boat, he sinned. And his son Ham sinned. And as we will see in the next weeks to come, degeneration is going to ramp up quickly. This civilization is going the way of the previous civilization. But it starts with eight believers, eight humans, Noah and his family. They enter into a cleansed environment. It is no Garden of Eden. It has just been swept clean by the flood. But the corruption has been taken out of it. Things are growing again. We even see that Noah is able to cultivate vines. But the problem is the sin nature remains. And sin is given an opportunity in both Noah and Ham. And we see it grow in Ham's grandson, Nimrod. We see it growing through the whole earth. And so the world quickly descends into corruption at Babel. God is going to provide some safeguards against that self-destruction. We are going to see him step in and divinely divide. But this civilization will still end, and it will end in the Great Tribulation. In that, a believing remnant will once again be transported by Operation Lifeboat into the next civilization. Now, this says just the believing remnant of Israel is preserved. There will be believers outside of Israel who are preserved, called the Tribulation Saints. They will also enter into the next civilization in mortal bodies. But now there's another interesting correlation between the first civilization and the second. And that is two different kinds of preservation. Hebrews 11.5 tells us that by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. He was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up he was pleasing to God. This was one method that God used to preserve his people, 
to pull them out of a corrupt and degenerate society. Also in Hebrews 11.7, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. God pulled one out and God carried one through. The same thing occurs in this civilization. God is going to pull a people out and he is going to carry another through judgment. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 tells us of the rapture of the church. Actually, the precedent for the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, that God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 tells us of the actual event. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. This is our Enoch event. The church, a peculiar people for God, distinct from Israel, but founded on the blood of Christ through faith. We will be taken up before the time of judgment, the time of judgment which comes upon the world for its sins that they have not turned to Jesus for salvation from. The very tribulation itself, just like the flood, is not the vengeance of Satan, it is the vengeance of God on an unbelieving world. The church, like Enoch, cannot be there for that. But he will also preserve another people through the tribulation. Specifically, he will preserve the remnant of Israel that is protected in Petra. He will come and rescue them from the global government that is swarming them on every side, which has amassed an army and seeks to become like the Most High, having his throne above the Most High. Matthew 25 tells us of the separation, the judgment at the end of the tribulation period, because both believers and unbelievers alike will survive the tribulation period. This is not like the flood. But unbelievers will not enter into the next civilization. Believers will. Matthew 25, 31, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Jesus spoke about this earlier in a parable to his disciples. If you've been a part of the Life of Messiah study, you will remember that Jesus spoke in parables after he had been rejected by Israel, so that his disciples could understand and continue to grow and develop in their understanding of God's word and God's plan, but so that those who had rejected them would not have more weight upon their judgment. They would not have more revelation that they were responsible for and would come under condemnation for. And so Jesus taught in parables, and this was one of his great parables about the end of the age, the end of the civilization. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, the gathering or in gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. 
So it will be at the end of the age, angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the great sifting, the great separation at the end of this present civilization in which God will effectuate Operation Lifeboat and carry the believers who survived the tribulation into the kingdom. And so the kingdom begins with only believers in mortal bodies. There will be believers in resurrection bodies and in glorified bodies through translation in the rapture. But the focus of this kingdom, especially in Revelation 20, is those who enter in their mortal bodies because it is those who will undergo the process of degeneration. And you will see that no matter how perfect the environment is, mankind and his inclination towards rebellion and sin, that is the problem. A life lived apart from Jesus, apart from dependence on God, that is the problem, not his provision of an environment. Because the kingdom will be the most perfect environment that has ever existed. Far, far better than Eden because Jesus Christ the King will be ruling over the earth with a rod and a scepter. He will rule perfectly and not only that, but Satan will be imprisoned. For the entire duration of the millennial kingdom, Satan will be in chains and yet what will drive mankind to rebellion but their own inclination towards rebellion? At the end of this tribulation period, we see that many choose to rebel. So much that as soon as Satan is released from his chains, immediately he can amass an army. Revelation 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are complete... Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog together or to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sands of the seashore. This is how the third civilization ends with a third rebellion that threatened the very destruction of mankind. They came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Once again, a total destruction of all who are rebellious. And so the end of that civilization has King Jesus conquering Satan's army of mortal rebels. And then only believers remain, and they are translated into the eternal state. This is not a new civilization. This is the continuation of eternity. This is the very purpose, then, of our creation of our earth. It is a blip in eternity so that God can create for himself a people. He created for his son a throne that he would rule on. And at the beginning of this eternal state, Jesus Christ's throne over creation will merge with his father's throne, a throne which he has earned, and he will rule together with his father for all of eternity. And we will forever be with him. But those are the three civilizations of this earth. And so let's take a look at the actual process of degeneration. We saw this promise to Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, after he had been given a vision of the nations to come, all the great nations that would rule on the earth. Chapter 4, we even saw a mandate to Nebuchadnezzar to rule over the earth and his mandate to all those Gentile kings and rulers who would come after him to rule on behalf of the God of Israel. That extends to our own ruler, 
He has been given this mandate by the one he succeeded, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar learned through a period of humiliation that God reigns above all things and all power for a nation comes from God, not from the king. But at the end of Daniel's vision, at the end of Daniel's book, he is given one last message from an angel before he tells him that he will not survive to the end of the civilization, but he will die and be resurrected into the next. Daniel 12.10 says that many will be purged, purified and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. This is the process that that civilization would continue in while, uh, while it remained. Now, when we did Jude, I went through Romans 1 pretty quickly. And to uh, some of you, it sounded like I was talking about believers. Romans 1 is not about believers. It's also not about unbelievers because it's not about individuals. It's about a civilization. This is how a civilization that begins with believers turns into a corrupt civilization. And it happens from one generation to the next. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. This is the foundation of a civilization built out of believers, built out of Noah and his family. God's word is known. God's word is passed down from generation to generation. Where then is there room for degeneration? But in the transfer from one generation to the next. Romans 1.21 says, Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. This is the process of degeneration. Denying God the worship he is due and giving it to the creation instead of the creator. Therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And yet another round of degeneration. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. You see, what's happening today is nothing new. Paul knew it in his day. Paul warned the Roman society about it. A nation, which just like every other nation, was responsible to God and was removed because its passions became so degraded. Nations rise and fall on their ability to preserve the righteousness of God. When a society becomes degenerate, it is removed. That nation falls. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. To do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, 
and disobedient to parents. This one kind of hangs in there like the uh, red-headed cousin. Why is that in there? This is the root. One generation to the next, they did not listen to their parents. Either that or their parents did not train them up in the way that they should go. But it was a breakdown between the generations. A generation did not pass on the righteousness of God or the knowledge of God to the next generation. Here is this summary of degeneration from RB theme. Degeneracy occurs in many forms. Physical, sexual, violence. There is a mental attitude of degeneracy. There is an intellectual activity which excludes God. There are self-destructive human solutions to the problems of life. We see that today in our culture. People mutilating their bodies because they were born in the wrong body. A self-destructive solution for the problems of life. There is power lust from the sin nature, which is converted by human volition into de degenerate forms of government. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Once again, this is why a one world government is a bad idea. This is why globalism is a bad idea from the pits of hell. It will destroy absolutely. Read Revelation 17 and 18. It destroys absolutely. Babylon falls. The global government falls because it becomes so corrupt that it even seeks to make war with God. The nations arriving in the plains of Megiddo, they're going to take over Jerusalem and then they're going to take the throne of God. There's a lot of dumb wars fought today, but that will be the dumbest. This is degeneration in the culture and the society of a country. What happens then when there's only one country? Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own insights. I like this uh, woe to those who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter because it parallels well with what I like to call Operation Honeycomb. This is how God has preserved our civilization to this point. And we don't want to substitute sweet for bitter or bitter for sweet. We want our little hexagon in this honeycomb to remain the righteousness of God. He has perforated all of humanity to preserve individually people groups, to stave off corruption from corrupting everything, to keep the leaven of sin from leavening the whole lump. Genesis 11, 7 through 9 again, come let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. When's the last time one of you had a conversation with a Chinese person in Chinese? You don't. This is a barrier. This is a barrier that has been erected. And despite the linguists and polyglots that exist all over the world, this barrier has never been overcome. God has overcome it by translating the or having the Bible translated into so many different languages that no one is really without the word of God. But this does keep us separated. I lived in Korea for three years. I learned a fair bit of Korean. It was still a barrier. God knows what he's doing. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth. And they stopped building the city. 
Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Different cultures have different sins and different safeguards put up against those sins. Our culture has been dealing with various sexual sins for a long time. It's not quite the conservative nation it once was, though uh, sadly the nation to the north is even less conservative than we are, so we stand out and look like a conservative nation. But at this point, we really are not. And having lived in a nation that's been conservative far longer, Korea, I see the effects of blurring these lines, of breaking down these barriers, where we are buying wholesale their culture and they are buying wholesale our culture. We inevitably inject into one another's culture sins that we have not built up barriers against. Unfortunately, we've interjected these sexual sins into a culture like Korea, where before it existed, but suddenly in this one generation it has ramped up to such an incredible degree that the children's parents had no idea what kind of things their children were now believing and accepting. One generation that breakdown can happen when these borders are taken away. Now, I don't think we need to be completely isolationists, but we need to be a righteous culture that spreads righteousness abroad. We don't want to import our sins to other cultures. If we import anything, we want to import our righteousness. And not our righteousness, but Christ's righteousness in us. Oops. This is not a bad thing. Today, the whole world is telling you this is a bad thing. This was a gift from God to preserve us from becoming holy, one corrupt people. We have to pray for our nation. We have to pray for other nations. It's not wrong to love your nation, to care for it. It's good. It was a gift from God. We ought to treat it as a gift from God and seek to preserve it. You know, even when we get to the very last days, when God is dealing with the whole world in judgment in the book of Revelation, still those people are divided by tribes, tongues, people, and nations. God uses this to speak of the reach of the reconciliation through Christ's blood. It has pulled out a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. The church crosses borders. But it's also the reach of those people who celebrate over the murder of God's righteous witnesses in the tribulation, in the tribulation period. The whole world will be of one mind about the massacre of God's prophets. The reach of the false Christ's authority will be over every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Like Nimrod amassing nations to himself so that borders are really no longer borders. There is one government that controls them all. But it's also the reach of the eternal gospel that God will provide in the tribulation period. Now there are a few changes in language. When John is recommissioned to prophesy, one of those is changed, tribes is changed to kings, rulers over these nations. John is to prophesy about rulers, tongues, meaning people of different languages, people, different people groups, however they divide themselves, and nations, nation states. But lastly, and most sad of all, is the reach of Babylon's influence, the one world government that exists in the last days. 
it also reaches to all multitudes of people. Breaking down that barrier, no longer tribes, but one amassed people. This is the only time in all of Revelation where this tetrad of names has something that does not divide people, multitudes, masses. They will still have different languages. They will still be different people groups and they will come from different nations, but they are all individually under the influence of the harlot of Babylon. This is the danger of a one world government. God often gives us analogies pretty quick into his plans. He does this in the church with Ananias and Sapphira. He tells us the extent to which a believer can be punished. He shows us the extent to which a nation can be punished soon after he establishes nation states. It's Genesis 18 and 19 where we see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah because their degeneracy reached a fever pitch and corrupted everyone in the nation. You'll remember Abraham pleading with God saying, if there are 40 people, 35 people, 30, 20, 10 people, 10 righteous people, will you preserve the nation? Only Lot and his two daughters ended up leaving. The rest of the nation was destroyed. One honeycomb, or one hexagon in the honeycomb, corrupted and removed. Now we have our citizenship in America, most of us, if not all of us, but more importantly, we all have our citizenship in heaven. This crosses all borders. This has no borders. This is no nation. This is an organism, the body of Christ. And in Revelation 5.9, Jesus Christ is worshipped for this very fact. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and, a, and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So this brings us to our application. We today who live in the divine or in the dispensation of grace, after the cross, before the end of the civilization, we have a duty and we have a task. And every people of every nation has that duty and task in their own hexagon of the honeycomb. We want to exercise that in our own nation. Thankfully, we are a church who supports missionaries, but sometimes we forget we are all missionaries in our everyday lives. It's also not just the pastor's job to share the gospel. It's a pastor's job to help raise up people who share the gospel. Each one of us are responsible for our nation. Each one of us are responsible for passing on the knowledge of God to the next generation. You know, I think our founding fathers understood this idea of honeycombing. I don't think they had as great a term for it as I do, but they understood it. And they put into the First Amendment of the Constitution something called the Establishment Clause. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, if you look in a dictionary before 1820, religion here does not refer to the world religions, but it refers to denominations within Christianity. Keep in mind, America had come out of the disaster of the Church of England. The oppression of forcing a corrupt theology on people who could now read their own Bibles and see that what was being taught was false. I often take this very unpopular stance today that I think denominations are a good thing. I don't think we should all be united because 
I doubt that we would all unite on truth. We are called to be a, one, a single united body in Christ, but we are never called to forsake truth for the sake of unity. We are told that there will be divisions, that Christ will divide, and that division is always on the lines of truth. I also don't believe in denominations as a denominational organization, because once again, that imposes what could be false doctrines on others. Each local body, each church has its own responsibility to read God's word for itself, to understand it, and stand on the truth of God's word. God's Bible, God's word, that is our unity. And where we lose that, we lose everything. So it is good to have some divisions, so long as those divisions are on the lines of truth. If something is false, if scripture teaches against it, do not follow it. Do not be part of that hexagon in the honeycomb. And the establishment clause protects our nation from this. This does not keep religion out of the public square. This keeps the government from mandating a specific denomination that all must come under. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. They cannot force us to be part of one church or the other. We are all personally responsible to God. They cannot prohibit then the free exercise thereof. We have every right to practice and exercise our religion as scripture teaches. Our country is a country founded on biblical principles by godly men. John Adams understood this. John Adams, part of the foundation of our country, understood this. He also understood the necessity of maintaining the moral fabric of Judeo-Christian worldview. And he says our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Now ask yourself, what is the primary constitution of this country? Is it a moral and religious people? Or a degenerate and debased people? Is it an unbelieving people or a believing people? Our Constitution doesn't work for the people who operate under it today, and that is why it is under attack. We do not do away with the foundation of our country, because when the foundation is destroyed, where do the righteous go? Now, our Constitution does not quite reach to the level of God's Word, which is the foundation spoken of there in Isaiah but it is a godly foundation. And we must stand on it so long as it coincides with God's revealed word. We do not forsake God's word and we don't throw out this godly constitution or clauses in it because it doesn't fit with an unregenerate people. Rather, we seek the regeneration of these persons in our nation by sharing the gospel. Not arguing politics, sharing the gospel. We need a regenerate people in this nation for this nation to work. I like this quote from Regent University. I think they get it. They are a Christian university. They say the biggest threat to our constitutional order is as our founders warned, the failure to pass to subsequent generations the character, virtue, and knowledge required to protect the constitutional safeguards. And what is that? A moral and religious people. Victories in court will be hollow and ephemeral if we fail to instill in future generations the virtues upon which our nation was founded. 
the decisions of the Supreme Court and ultimately the preserva preservation of the Constitution itself rests downstream from culture. Preserving the Constitution requires maintaining the virtuous culture it was designed to serve. Far from needing to kick prayer, kick Bible, kick religion, kick God to the curb, our nation more than ever needs a resurgence of biblical Christians. It needs a resurgence of people who trust God and not their nation so that their nation can be built around God. Notice the juxtaposition here in Genesis 18 between Abraham and Lot's position. God says of Abraham, I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And then God moves to Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord said the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. Their sin is exceedingly grave. And when we get to Sodom and Gomorrah, we see Lot himself debased and his daughters dragged out unwillingly by angels. He was not passing on the knowledge of God to the next generation. And in Deuteronomy 6, Israel is warned to pass on the knowledge of God to the next generation if they want to stay in the land and enjoy the land. They are a special and peculiar nation to the Lord. He is going to spend much of revealed scripture dealing specifically with them in their nation because they are the primary preserving force for much of this civilization, 1,500 years of it. And in one of the greatest spiritual warfare passages in all the New Testament, it is no surprise that right at the forefront, we see the necessity for family, for marriage, for passing on to the next generation discipline and instruction. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the beginning of spiritual warfare. Know God's word. Know God. And so how shall we seek to preserve our nation? We do not conform to this world. We are transformed by the renewing of the mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the foundation of our nation. This is the continuation of our nation. We rise and fall on that principle. And so this ought to always be the words on our lips. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, transferring one believer to now another, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. If we want to live, if we want our nation to survive, we stand on biblical principles and we are unapologetic about that. I'll end with a quote by Mark Twain here. Not a believer, but a pretty wise man at times. Broken clock is wrong twice a day. Patriotism, he says, is supporting your country all the time and your government when it deserves it. Government is a tool of God.
tools can be used improperly. We do not abandon our country, this gift of God, because we don't support the government in it, no matter who the government is. We have an incredible gift in this nation to have a voice, to live in a democratic republic where we get a vote. So vote. Vote in biblical principles. Vote in leaders who will allow you to live biblically, who will allow you to share your faith on the public square, who will not muzzle you from sharing the gospel that saves with everyone you encounter. Because the end of this civilization is coming fast enough. And there's only two def destinations, the kingdom of God or the fire where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. We do not want to keep anyone ignorant of that day coming. And our nation overall cannot be ignorant of that day coming. And so here is our takeaway this morning. The nation state is a provision of God to deter evil so that judgment can be forestalled. God can deal with an individual nation rather than the whole world. But remember, sin is a cancer and it spreads where there is no border. Protect your nation and be thankful for it. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for our nation. We are thankful that it has stood the test of time and that our Constitution was built by godly men on the foundation of your word. We thank you for the wisdom that these men exercised. We pray for the continued wisdom to preserve the godly foundations of this government and wherever possible to reinforce, amplify, or correct so that we are more aligned with your word every day. We pray for the health of our nation, for the safety of our nation, and for the preservation of our nation. We pray for the opportunity to continue to share your word with the unbelieving world. And we pray for revival in our country. We pray that men and women would turn to you, would stand on the solid foundation of your word, would not forsake it, and so would live lives worthy of being preserved for your glory. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.